trial and error and experimentation that comes with that, that it's a really fun challenge and one that you have to constantly evolve on. Just when you think you found a message that works, customer sentiment changes or there's new competitors that you're up against and everybody's saying the same thing and so you have to figure out. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jamie Schmidt, founder of Schmidt's Naturals, investor and co-founder of BFF. Jamie's built an incredibly diverse and interesting career and is now dedicated to helping others. As a loyal consumer of Schmidt's Naturals, I loved hearing about her journey from startup to being acquired by Unilever. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jamie, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It's so great to have you on with us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So you have a very varied career, and I'd love to hear about all of it, and we'll go into specific elements. But first, just to start, would love to understand, how did your professional journey unfold, and what were the early experiences in your life that led you to the career you have today? I was never one of those kids who knew what she wanted to be when she grew up. You know, so now looking back on my career path, it's fun to see how everything did play out and to know that there wasn't a whole lot of forethought that really went into it. Started with my education at Michigan State University, where I got my bachelor's. I kind of just chose business as a degree because it was the only thing that seemed practical to me, and there was nothing that I really felt passionate about at the time. Got my degree and then entered the big world of work. I jumped into the first job that spoke to me or that was relevant to my career, which was in human resources. Found myself working my way up the ladder pretty quickly. You know, I had pretty nice salary, not too long after graduation, found myself in jobs with really nice benefits packages, but understood that it really wasn't what I was meant to do long-term with my life, but still not quite understanding what that meant. Stuck with it while I could and jumped around, you know, between jobs within the industry and figured, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I'm going to get the most out of this and sort of find experiences that might benefit me later on that I can look back on and say, ah, okay, it all makes sense now. But I ended up moving cross country to Portland, Oregon. You know, this was mostly because I wanted a new atmosphere, see different parts of the country. I'd grown up in the Midwest and I thought Portland was really attractive because it was super creative, a little more diverse than where I had come from. And that proved to be a pretty smart move for me because I loved the culture. I fit right in with the artists and the makers and realized that there was a lot that I could do, you know, if I explored that creative side of myself and thought, you know what, this is the perfect place to to switch up my career if I could just figure out what I'm good at. So I tried a lot of things. I ended up working at a residential facility for kids with mental and behavioral health issues. And there is where I met my husband and partner today. And we got pregnant early. And with that, I started to pay closer attention to the products I was using on my skin, decided to make my own because it was cheap and it was, you know, the cleanest way to do it, but not quite realizing, you know, the business potential in that and sort of what my future would hold there. So thank you for that story. So now the path is really clear. We see where you're going with this. And of course, the business you started is Schmidt's Naturals, which has a number of different products, organic, clean, without fillers, preservatives, amazing products. Tell us how that came to be. How are you tinkering in your kitchen, at home, on these things for yourself? And what was a turning point where you discovered, wow, this might be a business that I could really sell these things? Yeah, the stars kind of aligned for me at that point in my life. As I mentioned, I had been searching for this sort of creative outlet, something new with my career, but didn't know what that meant. And of course, pregnant, so being very mindful of ingredients and the products I was using. And so with all that, started making a lot of things and took them out to the farmer's markets in Portland. Every weekend, there was an opportunity to sell, whether it was at a street festival, 
farmer's markets, some kind of fair, thinking, you know, these products are great for me. There's probably other people that will enjoy them too. And start to get a lot of really positive feedback and realize, you know what, there's something here and I can maybe make a little money off it. People start to ask, you know, where can I find your products in stores? And then it just clicked. Like, this is the moment I've been waiting for. This is, this is what I like to do. And this is what, you know, I, I might be good at. And just went all in, called it a business. I named it after myself temporarily, not realizing that that name would stick forever. And then just started calling myself an entrepreneur and building from there. And tell us about the products that you started with. My very first products were lotions, sunscreens, deodorants, shampoos, and bath salt. I was trying to do it all. So I saw a real big opportunity there. You know, this was back in 2010. There weren't a lot of brands on the shelves and the ones that did exist had a reputation for being ineffective or just kind of, you know, cliche packaging. And so I thought this is a really exciting opportunity to do something different. I have to tell you my personal deodorant story. I don't think I really talk about this much. So here we go. But I had been looking for natural deodorants for a long time too. I think I just wanted to start with aluminum free. But to your point, there never was anything good on the market that really worked. And of course, I always went back to normal mass produced ones until I saw yours. The rose scent was the first one I tried. And I was so pleased and happy that finally I could use something that I felt good about that actually worked. So I want to say thank you for that. Oh, I love that. And the rose scent was actually a, one of my favorite developments because it came directly from the requests of our customers. And we had done a survey asking people what fragrance they wanted to see next. And the top two responses were rose and vanilla. And so I put them together to create something beautiful. And then that became our top seller. I'm glad that's how it worked out because I really enjoy that too. And I'm also really excited when I go into a CVS and I actually see your product on the shelves there. And not only are you in CVS, but you're in Target and so many of the big box retailers. Tell us about that leap. How did you make it from selling in the distribution channels you started in to making this and really scaling? Yeah, those distribution channels where you might not expect to find a handcrafted natural deodorant made by a woman in her kitchen, you know, those were the, the channels I was most excited to get into because I saw a big opportunity there because no other natural deodorant brands were going after these channels. They either, they didn't exist on a mass scale yet, or they thought the channels just weren't right for their niche customer base. For me, that's where I saw the biggest opportunity was let's tap into new customers who don't know they need natural deodorant, who have never, you know, tried one. And how can we speak to that customer, but also stay true to like, you know, the niche sort of natural consumer that got the brand off the ground. And so that was a fun challenge for me and one that I'm really proud of. And I think what really differentiated Schmitz in the industry and what caught the attention of big brands like Unilever who wanted to acquire us. When you were putting together these products, and particularly maybe the deodorant, because as you said, you were looking for customers that might not have thought to use these products, how did you convince them to do that? How would you get someone to switch from a product they've been using for a very long time, and maybe they're fine with it and happy, to something that would be better for them and would require them to take a leap? A lot of trial and error with different marketing messages. There's a certain customer who responds to a natural deodorant that finally works, but that doesn't speak to everybody, right? And people haven't tried natural deodorants. And so how do we catch their attention? And so a lot of it was focusing on the ingredients and why maybe a healthier ingredient profile might be a smart choice. And some of it's in the imagery and the branding and the models that we chose and so much trial and error and experimentation that comes with that, that it's a really fun challenge and one that you have to constantly evolve on. Just when you think you found a message that works, customer sentiment changes, or there's new competitors that you're up against and everybody's saying the same thing. And so you have to figure out you know, ways to stay ahead. 
it's interesting you say that I do notice now more natural deodorants out there, even from the bigger brands that probably weren't in this space before. So you definitely tapped into something. When you think about your customers who are really hardcore, loyal fans, what feedback do they have for you? And how do you talk to them on an ongoing basis to continue to get ideas? Yeah, that changed over time. At the farmer's markets, of course, I had face-to-face interaction and that was a really vulnerable situation to be in, right? Because I was a new entrepreneur. Every entrepreneur, when they first start, feels sort of unworthy of customer attention, right? So like every interaction was just so special and you take all the feedback so, so seriously. And that I think worked to my benefit, right? Because you're hearing from customers directly, like what they like, what they want to see. You get to a point where you have to start kind of weeding through that feedback and you can't implement everything, right? What are you hearing consistently? What resonates with you and your long-term vision for the brand and your values? Making sense of what you can and want to change and what you need to sort of let go. So when you think about your customer base, who is that person you're trying to sell to? Tell us about the Schmitz natural customer in your mind. It definitely changed over time. I shouldn't say changed, but expanded. When I first started Schmitz, I was after customers who were just like me, right? People who were conscious of what they were using on their bodies. They appreciated products that smelled good and looked pretty and just wanted something healthy. And that was easy for me at the time because I was living in Portland, Oregon, which was you know, basically the definition of that type of customer. And that also meant selling in retailers like Whole Foods and the local co-ops. But as the business expanded, I recognized that we, I could do pretty big things with a greater audience and more customers and different types of customers that I was overlooking. And that was when I recognized the opportunities in in mass distribution and in partnering with retailers like Costco, Target, Walmart, who, you know, otherwise didn't have a huge assortment of those natural offerings. And it was important for me to stay really close to that niche customer, but then also open the doors to new people who deserve products like Schmidt's. So set the scene for us when you're in your experimental phase and you're mixing things at home and trying formulas. Was there a story that jumps out where you tried something and it just didn't work out? And what happened? I have so many of those. So I didn't use co-packers in the beginning. It was just me literally just throwing things together and figuring out what works. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a scientist. I was just somebody who was like really determined to make something that worked. And I love fragrances. So that was always fun, you know, experimenting with different essential oils. But there were so many moments of just pure frustration where I really thought I couldn't do it. So the deodorant was first packaged in a jar. It was a cream that you put on with your hands, which is great. There's a lot of reasons that was a nice option, but it wasn't going to cater to the mainstream audience, right? So I had to put it into a stick that people are used to. And that was probably the hardest thing I had gone through because it needed to be just as effective. I was working with an ingredient panel that was very limited. When you're natural, you can't use fillers and some of these other things that hold the product together and make it stable. And so I was just constantly trying different combinations of ingredients. And my kitchen had turned into a lab where I literally had like deodorant sticks marked. It's so wild, but those those were definitely like the funnest times, I think, in building the business. Ah, I love those stories. So fast forward to when Unilever approached you. Tell us how that occurred. How did you get in touch with them? What were those conversations like? Can't wait to hear the moment where you you signed the deal. But anyway, tell us how it evolved. I never had thought about an acquisition when I first started the business. It just, it wasn't in my thinking because I was so intertwined. It was such a part of my life and who I was and that I just couldn't imagine it any other way. But then as the business grew, you know, I became a little more savvy and understood the opportunities and getting things like investments and partners and acquirers. And so I started to entertain it, but it was still just so caught up in day-to-day operations that I wasn't putting a whole lot of thought into it. 2017, Schmitz was 
starting to become really widespread in mass distribution. So we were in Target, Costco, Walmart, you know, all within several months of each other. And with that came huge, huge expenses, you know, a lot of responsibility and started to think you need money, right? Like I had bootstrapped this entire endeavor. And so we were in a point where like money was super tight. I needed big brains behind this to help me think through things. And so started to get some interest from people and ended up hiring Goldman Sachs to broker some of this interest and to help us figure it out and weed through. And with that, we started to get more interest from others because once they're involved, other people start to come into the picture. And Unilever was one that was there pretty early and one that was most interested in because I felt that their bigger vision for their brand sort of aligned with where Schmitz was going. But I knew that that was the right partner for me after talking to others. It sounded like it was the right fit. You knew that early enough that it made it easier to go with them. And so tell us about how you went from bootstrapping this company, growing it the whole time to a major global corporation acquiring the business. What was important to you as you went into Unilever to preserve about the business and the products and just the culture? That's the toughest part, right? Anytime a brand gets acquired, you know, there's that's the biggest fear of any founder is like, what are they going to change? What was important for me to maintain was just the creative energy of the brand. You know, I was a maker at heart and I had stayed so close to the product throughout the growth. It got bigger. I was still, you know, in my kitchen formulating. And so, you know, how do we maintain that and keep that creative spark alive? Our brand had fun energy that I wanted to make sure didn't go stale. And sometimes you partner with a bigger corporation like that, you get sort of plugged in to the existing systems. And I didn't want those systems. I wanted spontaneity. And those were major concerns, you know, and, and very fair ones. And so it was hard. So many things to weigh. Well, we wish the brand certainly the best as it continues to grow and as you continue to stay involved. It's uh, definitely a product that we personally love. I'd love to talk to you now about some of your other interests, and you have many of them, investment funds, crypto, NFTs, writing. I think you've really taken on so many different places to go to, and hopefully your entrepreneurship background lends itself to all those different places. But let's start with one particular venture you're involved in, which is Blockchain Friends Forever, or BFF. Tell us about what this is and how this all came together with you and some of your other founders. Yeah, so I'm the co-founder of BFF. I started this with Britt Morin, so well-known, you know, in entrepreneurial space as well. And we together saw an opportunity to bring more women and non-binary people into this new space that we're referred to as Web3, the next phase of the internet. There's so much opportunity that we haven't tapped into yet. And we want to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table and is there to take advantage of not just financial opportunities, but the networking and the connections and the community building. And so we thought it was just a beautiful opportunity to do that. One of the things you did earlier this year was put together this two-hour show called WTF is an NFT. And I have watched this show. I think it's fantastic. And the last time I checked recently, there were over 60,000 views on YouTube. That is unbelievable. When we had the idea to create BFF, we knew that the first thing we wanted to do was have this big kickoff, introduce people to everything we thought they needed to know on, you know, on the most basic level. Like, what is an NFT? What is the blockchain? What's the information that's most critical to know, you know, just jumping in? put together this event, I thought, oh, you know, maybe 500 people or so will show. Like 20,000 people sign up and then 5,000 actually show up. It was validation of everything that we had set out to achieve. So it was, we were very excited. It was well produced. We had a great lineup of speakers. We covered the basics. And then the coolest part was that we rewarded everybody in attendance their first NFT. 
we airdropped at no cost this friendship bracelet that everybody could be excited to welcome into their wallets. And for as many people, they didn't have a wallet. And so that was part of this event too, was helping people set up their wallets, receive their NFTs. It's a memorable experience for a lot of people who were new to the space and probably one that they'll never forget. I'm sure it really got many people started with wallets and understanding this. I think that was really brilliant to do that. It wasn't only the education in terms of the learning, it was the doing that you brought to it as well. How do you go from here? How do you harness, obviously, a very dedicated audience that wants to learn more? We have to keep educating. A lot has changed since then. That was January. There's so much that BFF has done since then in terms of education and more NFT drops. But what's really interesting, you know, when you look at the market conditions now, you know, I get asked a lot, like, how do you feel about this for your community? You know, going through this sort of bear market. And I think it's fantastic because it's just part of the learning experience because it's not all roses and positivity in this space. And I think this is just an awesome opportunity for everyone to learn firsthand that like, this is part of it, right? And so to be able to hold our BFFs hands through this has been just a really cool experience. We're constantly looking at ways to keep the community engaged and to teach and to help connect and, and do some fun things too. You know, not everything is has to be so serious. Sometimes it's a fun meetup in Discord where we're making art together, or we have this perks program where we're rewarding our members with physical objects and conference attendance and things like that to keep people engaged and excited too. And when you think about that community of women, and there could be people who want to invest in this space and invest in crypto, there could be people who have businesses and want to get to know what should they be doing, the metaverse. There's so many different reasons and motivations, I think, for getting in this space. What do you want these different groups to take away? I think people need to understand what it is they want out of Web3 and this new technology because it is so personal and it's not going to be the same for everybody. And so that's the first step is like recognizing for yourself, what are the opportunities for me and what really resonates and gets me excited. And that's a big part of what we do is presenting this whole plate of opportunities, for lack of better words, and helping people understand what those are and then, you know, how they can use them on a personal level, a professional level, maybe unlock opportunities that they didn't know existed. That's the fun part for sure. So we look at the data very often around women who are in the metaverse, using wallets, starting companies in this area, and all of these numbers are so small for women. And my fear is that women really won't be there early enough into some potentially major wealth building sectors as we go forward. And so I really love what you're doing. And how can people who want to get involved really start their own educational journey? What would you tell them? In terms of BFF, we have a lot of free programming. You don't have to be a member. So maybe it's follow us on Twitter and, and follow along with the spaces that we, we, we're constantly hosting, you know, several a week where we're educating across, you know, different industries and how it relates to Web3. And that's, you know, you don't have to be a member to participate in that. And I think there's so many resources out there. There are other communities. Of course, BFF's not the only one. I always encourage people to explore all of them. You don't have to, you know, pick one and, and just stick with that. You can be, you know, involved in many and figure out, you know, what works best for you and what gets you most excited and who you relate to the most. Are there thought leaders that you follow or artists doing interesting things with NFTs? Yeah, I really love following other project founders, of course, and the artists. I get most excited about the creators and the makers and the people who are unlocking opportunity for themselves that they never had access to before. That is what gets me most excited about this space. It's not just the experienced entrepreneurs who can you know, jump in and carve out their path. As a seasoned entrepreneur, it's more like people who are so new, who never thought they had an opportunity to make a name for themselves and are now just uncovering this incredible opportunity. 
I think that's a great point, which is this is such a new space. So even though many women might not feel confident about it or think they don't know anything, not a lot of people really know anything. And we're creating this still right now. It's so early. So Jamie, I'd love to talk to you about your own entrepreneurship journey and the people who helped you along the way. Can you talk about any mentors, coaches, people who were important to you as you grew the business and what you learned from them? It really was truly like my community of other artists and makers that I was surrounded by. I was not on Twitter. Today, if I was building a business, I, I think I'd probably have a whole ton of mentors and people that you know I would be learning from, but back then I, I wasn't. And I literally was kind of a nobody. You, know? <laughs> you could Google my name and nobody would, would find Jamie Schmidt. And so I was just creating my own sort of circle of influence and peers and, and networking. And so it was literally the neighbor at the farmer's market, or it was the person who, as the business got a little bigger, I started to make friends with other brands on the shelves. And you start to find those people who are sort of in the position that you're in. And it's not always about finding someone who who's way advanced in their journey or who's already been there and done that. Sometimes it's just the people literally building like right next to you who are going to be the biggest kind of mentors for you as you go. That's terrific. I mean, that feels very achievable that you don't have to go and have the world's broadest network with the most successful founders. You've written a lot about your background experience. You have a book called Supermaker, Crafting Business on Your Own Terms. Why did you want to write a book to start? I never thought about writing a book when I was building the business. It was just never in my thinking. But once I had my big event and my acquisition, I realized I had learned so much and there was a lot that I could teach. And I was really excited to share it with more people. I did have a lot of early stage entrepreneurs reaching out to me and saying, how can I do what you did? You know, <laughs> it got me thinking like, well, there's a story here and there's, there are lessons to be shared. And so I wanted to put it all in a book and realize as I was writing it, just how much I had gone through and just the stories alone were just so insightful for you know people to learn from. And so the book was written, you know, part memoir, but then also a lot of, you know, taking away tangible advice that's outlined in a really digestible way for others who are building businesses. And is there a story in there that you really wanted to convey to entrepreneurs because you thought many of them would go through it, something very typical that you wanted to help them with? I think just the overarching theme that like anybody can do it. I probably was one of the most underestimated entrepreneurs because I didn't grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. I didn't have relevant experience. Like, yes, I had my degree, but what, you know, what did that really do? I just want to help others understand that like, you know, with the tools they have, just the right business idea and the commitment, like literally anybody can, can do it. And, you know, especially when you're a bootstrapped entrepreneur, that's when the stories get real juicy and there's a lot to learn there. And I think that's just the funnest, best, most challenging way to build a business. And so I think my story really speaks more to to those founders as well, you know, less so the VC-backed businesses. And as you were going down that path and really financing growth yourself, did you think about going the VC route? And if so, how did that pan out? Or from the start, were you just really trying to do this on your own and maintain ownership? I had a slow start to the business where I was building at my own pace. I had no partners, no employees. It was literally just me for a couple of years. And with that, I was in control. There was nobody to answer to. I didn't have these crazy sales goals set. It was just what works for me and my lifestyle. And so that mentality stuck with me as the business started to grow. You know, I wasn't interested in funding. The money was certainly attractive, but one, I didn't know where to start and didn't have the time to step back and make time for fundraising and meeting with investors. And I realized how to be scrappy and just maintain that mentality and strategy as I went. 
with bootstrapping, you're literally recycling profits back into the business. And so you become so intentional with all your spending and how you operate. And that is just probably the greatest gift that you can give yourself as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, what a lesson that every dollar that you're making, you need to know exactly where you're putting it and why would you put it there versus anywhere else. And so I really love that. And it's really refreshing to hear you describe this. I think so many entrepreneurs, women included, feel like they have to go the VC route. They have to be out there raising money. And we know it's harder for them that women generally get 2% of all VC dollars to female-led entirely companies. But maybe they don't have to do that, at least not in the beginning. So speak to the listener out there who, like you, has this idea, maybe has a young family or other responsibilities really wants to go out there and start something, what would you tell her? Go at your own pace. There's such a hustle culture right now. And the brands that are most sustainable are the ones that truly start from a solid foundation and aren't just rushing in to build something, right? They know where their audience is. They know that they want to be in it. And just taking that time to check in with themselves and make sure this is the direction they want to go before fully committing. I think that's so important. And then also just keeping an open mind to shifting gears when you need to, because not everything will go as you think it will. (laughs) That's very important. Jamie, thank you so much for being with us. It is so interesting to hear about your journey. We love your products. I'm so glad you're making them. They are keeping me comfortable and healthy. So thank you. And we wish you the best. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jamie Schmidt. From entrepreneur to author to Web3 leader, Jamie had such great tips for all of us. The opportunity in Web3 is huge, and we need more women in this space to help drive its future. I hope you are inspired by the conversation and take the time to educate yourself on Web3 and related areas. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.